0: Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We call this episode, So Much Winning. It is truly refreshing to have three topics today that we're going to discuss on the podcast that all involve LGBTQ people winning strong victories at high levels on important issues. First, we'll talk about a gay church music director who claimed his former employer should not get a free pass for subjecting him to hostile working conditions. Next, we'll talk about two federal appellate rulings that deal with the issue of equal access to fairness for transgender students seeking to simply exist at school. Finally, we'll chat about a successful attempt by litigators for team equality to block the Trump rule that sought to strip trans people of important non-discrimination protections in healthcare. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments in the LGBT sphere here and abroad. Hi, Professor Leonard, how you doing Art?
1: Okay, doing yeah. fine. Yeah, teaching on Zoom, uh-huh. Zooming along.
0: Zoom, Zoom, <laughs> Zoom. And you know, I feel, zoom.
1: I, I feel I actually know my students better because, and, and one of my colleagues remarked on this in the faculty meeting when we were trading anecdotes about teaching. He says, it is so wonderful that all the students are right in front of you on the screen, and their names are right in front of you on the screen, right. and their <laughs> pictures. So you can start associating names with faces. He says, it's so difficult to learn names in a big classroom. Or even a medium-sized classroom Uh, because they're – even if the students put up name cards and some – you know, I have a handful of colleagues who are are still teaching in person, very small number, and they're they're having name cards made for the students (laughs) because, uh, you know, because they said most of the classes on Zoom, The, the students have the option not to come in person. So one person is telling me he has a 60-student class and five people show up at the school right. <laughs> everyone else is on Zoom. And he's commuting in from the suburbs, so he's talking about negotiating with the students to all go on Zoom.
0: Right. Well, so, yes, between that and getting intimately associated with students just because they're seeing when your husband walks through the office or when right. dog barks at the lawnmower guy, it's...
1: They, they see Timmy walking behind me and I say, the, the, ignore it, that's my husband, you know. Right. So I'm out to them, you know, they've all seen my husband now very early in the semester. Oh,
0: you were so discreet, Art. I, right. I knew.
1: <laughs> all they had to do was read my profile on the, yeah, on the law school website.
0: Well, at least we know under Title VII that, uh, well, public public employees would have been protected. So um, some... my school is private. So. I know. Well, you're in New York and we didn't need to worry about that anyway because our state has those protections. But, um, let's dig right in because we have a lot of really great stuff to talk about. Um, right. August edition of War Notes is just booming with really important federal appellate rulings, and I want to start with you know last month we talked about the ministerial exception to anti-discrimination laws, which the Supreme Court has expanded over the years to prevent religious organizations from being sued about their decisions to hire or fire employees who can be described as ministers, quote unquote. And we have a federal appellate panel ruling from the Seventh Circuit that once again involves a gay church music director who was terminated uh, after his marriage to his husband. And he's asserting that the ministerial exception does not prevent him from suing his former employer for subjecting him to severely hostile working conditions. And in this case, the hostile conditions were so severe that they were impacting his ability to perform his job. And so the question before the panel is whether religious organizations have the ability to mistreat employees in a way that would violate federal anti discrimination laws by claiming this ministerial exception. And what about if it's motivated by a claim that it uh, was motivated by their religious beliefs to treat the employee as such. So, Art, give us the facts of this case and tee up the claims here. It's really interesting.
1: Okay. Uh, this uh, the plaintiff here is Shandor Demkovich, who was hired to be the music director at Saint Andrew the Apostle Roman Catholic Church in Calumet City, Illinois, and he was hired in 2012. At the time he was hired, it's not clear from the opinion whether they knew he was gay at the time he was hired, but eventually they knew he had a same-sex partner, and and uh, his boss, uh, a priest named Yachik Dada. Uh, quickly figured out he was gay and started riding him unmercifully, you know, calling him names and, and making nasty comments and things of that sort on a pretty regular basis. So the guys it made him very uncomfortable in the workplace, obviously, more than merely uncomfortable. It was really making him nervous and depressed, stuff like that. And at the same time, of course, uh, we had very interesting developments going on uh, in the state of Illinois in terms of marriage uh, before. Well before Obergefell, uh, after the Windsor decision in uh, in 2013, uh, action got underway in Illinois and they ended up legislating same-sex marriage. They already had uh, civil unions. Uh, so they took the next step. And so within a very short period after Windsor, uh, while litigation was going on all around the country on marriage, it didn't have to go on in Illinois because the legislature responded to Windsor. Uh, so uh, Mr. Demkovich had been with his partner for more than a decade at that point, And the word got out at the church that he was planning to marry his partner. And uh, Father Dada said to him, basically over my dead body, that sort of thing, he said, uh, you, you may not marry another man. You may not, it's, you know, it's a, it's a grievous sin, the church disapproves, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he alleges in his complaint that the harassment that he'd already been receiving escalated as the date of his proposed marriage approached. And once he got married, uh, Father Dada calls him in and says, well, you know, now you have to resign. The church can't employ a man who's married to another man. And he refused to resign, so they fired him. Okay. And he went to a lawyer. Now I'm hypothesizing a little about how the conversation went down, but it's clear that he would be covered by the ministerial exception. Uh, He directs the choir, he plays the organ, he participates in leading the services, etc. You know, the selection of the hymns to sing and all this sort of thing. Uh, So it's clear. Church music directors are covered by the ministerial exception. The question is, how far does the ministerial exception extend? And the principal Supreme Court cases in which the court Adopted this, uh, there had been a split in the lower courts about whether there was a ministerial exemption. Because Title VII exempts religious organizations from the ban on religious discrimination, all right, but not from the ban on discrimination because of race or color, national origin, or sex. The ministerial exemption, as interpreted by the Supreme Court in uh, the Hosanna Tabor case, which is the lead case on this, and then earlier this summer in Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey, Peru, uh, they say when it comes to hiring or discharge, under the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause, a church has to have absolute free hand, absolute discretion on whom they hire and whom they discharge. That was the basis for applying the ministerial exception and in the cases, Our Lady of Guadalupe was actually a consolidation of two cases, both arising in the same diocese in Los Angeles involving school teachers at Catholic schools uh, and these were not religion teachers these were elementary school teachers who taught the broad range of uh, regular subjects in elementary school but also who had a religion class you know uh, there was a regular religion class that was part of the curriculum and the court said as long as they're involved in teaching religion they're ministerial employees uh, but this only had to do with discharge in those cases. These were wrongful discharge cases. And so now the Seventh Circuit looks at this, and I'm sure that the lawyer who he consulted to bring this lawsuit said, well, you can't sue for wrongful discharge, because the ministerial exception cases all say, if you come within the ministerial exception, they have a right to fire you. Any reason at all. Government has nothing to say about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you know, it's possible. You, you The story you've told me, you've got a great hospital environment harassment case. Maybe, the ministerial exception doesn't apply to that. Right. Let's try it out. So they go to the district court. And uh, he also, when he was hired, he has various various, uh, physical and medical conditions that could be considered disabilities, including being overweight. And uh, Father Dada did not limit his harassment to the guy's sexual orientation. He was also writing about how he looked and the time he took off for his medical stuff and all this kind of stuff. Uh, So, he bought a double-barreled complaint.
0: Holy behavior, right?
1: Yes. He bought bought a double-barreled complaint, Title VII and Americans with Disabilities Act, claiming a hostile environment on both statutes. So, the archdiocese gets gets sued. They move to dismiss, raising the ministerial exception. And the trial judge said, well, I can see how the ministerial exception might apply on the Title VII claim, because uh, of the uh, Catholic theology about homosexuality, etc., that seems to have been Father Dada's motivation. And so maybe that's covered by the ministerial exception. But I can't see how there's any theological basis for subjecting someone to a hostile environment because of their disabilities. So he refused to dismiss the ADA claim. So we ended up with cross appeals to the Seventh Circuit. And so the Seventh Circuit is considering uh, actually the broad question, because it was the church that was really pursuing the appeal. They wanted to get a ruling that they were immune from any suit for hostile environment, under the ministerial exception. And the Seventh Circuit panel split two to one on this. The Seventh Circuit panel said they're not immune from an ADA hostile environment suit, and they're not even immune from a hostile environment suit under Title VII. And the Basta case helps on this, uh, since the uh, Supreme Court has has now said that uh, this clearly comes, any uh, sexual orientation discrimination of any kind, including hostile environment, comes under Title VII. That's been pinned down for us. So uh, not only did the court revive the Title VII claim, but They said, you can also go ahead on the ADA claim. So the church lost its bet. I mean, they pushed, actually this wasn't cross appeals, This was the church appealing. Uh, And uh, they thought they would get rid of the ADA claim. Instead, the Title VII claim got revived by the Court of Appeals. And uh, so now they have to face both. And the court said, uh, we have to look at the reason for the ministerial exception as explained by the court in Hosanna Tabor and uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe. And the reason is that a religious organization under the First Amendment has to have the right to decide whom they will employ as a minister, that that's a religious decision. Mm-hmm. So they have a right to discriminate on any basis they want in hiring and firing and other tangible personnel actions like what your job assignment is, what your pay is, that kind of thing. but intangible stuff and the courts have always classified hostile environment cases as intangible they're, they're about the atmosphere mm-hmm. they're not about pay or hiring or firing although of course if a hostile environment is extremely severe some it might turn into a constructive discharge and i would be very interested to see whether the seventh circuit would consider a constructive discharge case as being within or without the ministerial exception but this wasn't that case. I mean, he did not quit. He was told you have to quit, and he refused to quit. So he obviously would have been willing to stay. But uh, you know, it, in order to meet the bar of having an actual hu- actionable, hostile environment under Title 7 or the ADA, you have to have severe and pervasive harassment that interferes with the individual's ability to do their job. And the court said, uh, we are not making a decision on the merits on that, because after all this was all a motion to dismiss, nothing's been proved yet, it's all based on allegations and the complaint. But we think he has a right to a trial on his hostile environment claim. And the the, court, the church had also raised the issue that there might be First Amendment issues about discovery, about interrogating priests under oath. about. Things that involve theology and stuff like that, and the court said, "We'll we'll get to that when we get to that." Right? Right now, the issue is, does he have a cause of action? Uh, If you uh, have a deposition of uh, Father Dada, for example, and uh, his lawyer can raise uh, objections to questions on First Amendment free exercise grounds, and the court can decide those. So, discovery might end up being limited in some ways. But
0: it sounds you know, like Father Dada is very Trumpy in the way he, he uh, claims Trump-y. Privilege over literally, literally everything.
1: So we have a new adjective here, Trumpy.
0: <laughs> it doesn't spark joy, Art. It doesn't. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's well, talk about the uh, dissent here.
1: Yeah, well, the dissent, uh, we have, uh, we have uh, a conservative judge, Joel Flom, who uh, was appointed by Ronald Reagan. And he's he's been around, he's so old, he should be on senior status, but he likes to work full time, so he's not. He's still a, an active judge. He is, in fact, one of the longest serving active Court of Appeals judges in the nation at this point. So he was appointed in 1983, and before then he'd been a district court judge. Uh, so he says he doesn't see what the majority sees as the limitations on the ministerial exception from the prior cases. I mean. Both of the prior cases that the Supreme Court decided were discharge cases. But he said the Supreme Court did not say that the church would be amenable to suit on any legal theory with respect to their personal actions involving uh, ministers or people who come within uh, the broad definition of ministers. Even after the Supreme Court really broadened it in Our Lady of Guadalupe. They basically said, you know, any teacher at a religious school who has any responsibility for communicating religious doctrine to the students is a minister, no matter what, how small a percentage of their time they spend doing it. Uh, so the ministerial exemption is broad, but the scope of the kind of uh, actions that it precludes is, according to the majority here, not so broad. And Judge Flom wasn't willing to live with that. And the question is, is the church willing to live with that, or are we gonna get a circ petition on this?
0: Right.
1: I mean, the Supreme Court is very interested in the intersection of religion and anti-discrimination law. As we know, they're going to be hearing argument in November in the uh, City of Philadelphia, the Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case, which presents that issue. Uh, so uh, we could see a cert petition in this case, although it might seem a little bit premature because, uh, you know, we had a motion to dismiss and the motion to dismiss was granted and then the Seventh Circuit reverses the motion to dismiss. We're just going on a complaint here. Right. Uh, but that hasn't stopped the Supreme Court in the past.
0: That's true. And and you're right, we're not going to, this will not be the end of this issue in very short order. We're definitely dealing with all of these same types of claims with neutral laws of general application to LGBT people and free exercise claims by individuals, corporations, uh, religious organizations. Um, so th- the Supreme Court's going to be touching on this, but I did think it was rather interesting that this was the first time the circuit court was hearing a case about whether the ministerial exception applies to hostile work claims. It seems like that would have come up before, Um, maybe just not post Hosanna uh, Tabor and um, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Is that why we're seeing this issue bubble up for the first time?
1: Well, I think I think part of it is that uh, you know people were discouraged because we had these rulings that they couldn't sue when they got fired. Yeah. So you know they lose and they go away. But someone here had the bright idea because of the the uh, particularly severe way that Mr. Demkovich was being treated. Let's try for a hostile environment case here. I I credit his uh, his attorneys with being creative here. And uh, let's that see, he's, he's, he's right. represented by a bunch of local attorneys in Schomburg, Illinois. Uh, right. Christina Alcast, Thomas J. Fox, and Patty Levinson of Lavelle Law Limited. Yeah. So, you it's know, this bad. isn't a movement case. This isn't oh. like uh, the ACLU or Lambda or something like that. It's, you know, some local lawyers, and they got this idea and they ran with it.
0: I love that. Yeah, it was surprising to me that there wasn't a big, uh, you know, LGBT rights organization connected to this kind of case. And um, you know, I'll just also mention that you always at the end of law notes summarize who and credit who is bringing the case um, and also note and and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the judges who are involved in deciding the case um,
1: right.
0: and the interesting tidbit that um, you know the the author was Barack Obama's first uh, uh, court of appeals nominee in 2009. Um, right. But it does kind of bring up the, I don't know if you've seen, but the Supreme Court shortlist that Trump just re off right. and the parade of horribles that are on it.
1: Yeah, I would call it the rogues gallery. But, oh, yeah. you know, and imagine one of the people he's he's got on his list is like, I think it's a federal district judge who's still in her 30s or something like that. Yeah. Could, could you imagine, I mean, the idea of the Supreme Court, it's supposed to be like, really experienced, really expert, etc. cetera. And, uh, you know, he's not going for that. He's not, he's, he's, that list includes people who were rated as unqualified for the lower courts by the ABA,
0: you know, <laughs> so. completely insane, like uh, Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton. I well, mean-
1: Ted, Ted Cruz, you know, Ted Cruz is a graduate of Harvard Law School and he was the attorney general of Texas. Right. Oh. And I mean, he's got credentials. Sure. I, I hate his politics. I hate his, his legal theories. But, but then this guy, Ho, who he appointed to the uh, yeah. to the Fifth Circuit, who was one of our great nemesis. Although talked even about Ho a lot. Although even the Ho sought to redeem himself, he, he really – he called out a litigant on uh, homophobic stuff in, the, in their briefing. So,
0: Small you know, potatoes. Right. All right. Well, let's, so take, let's take a short break and move on to our next uh, topic. Great, so we're back. Next up, we have two federal appellate panel rulings to discuss uh, involving recent uh, the recent win at the Supreme Court in the Title VII case, which of course barred discrimination against LGBTQ workers as unlawful sex discrimination, and whether that will extend to Title IX claims involving protecting youth in schools. And in these cases, we're dealing with students who are seeking the right to equal access to restrooms and locker rooms, matching their gender identity. These claims were winning to begin with, um, but they're certainly, uh, you know, they have more wind at the sails now that we have the Bostock victory. Can you talk about these cases and how Bostock is, is uh, bearing fruit uh, across the spectrum of claims for LGBTQ people, Art?
1: Yeah, really, the interesting thing about how Bostock is playing out is you know, a lot of people, I'm sure, if they actually read the court's opinion and tried to work it through and and uh, also paid attention to the dissents, I mean, the opinions in that case were an argument among the conservatives on the court about how to do textualist interpretation of a statute. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that uh, in interpreting a statute What counts are the actual words that Congress used in passing the statute or that a state or local legislation used. It's the actual words. We shouldn't be cared about legislative history, contemporary news reports, uh, statements on the floor, committee reports. What we should be concerned about is the actual words and what they mean. And even uh, textualists will tell you their meaning at the time. Because at the time, they were were, uh, the words that were chosen by the legislature to communicate what it was trying to accomplish. Uh, But Gorsuch took that to a literal extreme. And he said, forget about legislative history. Forget about the fact that in 1964, when Congress passed Title VII, nobody was thinking about transgender rights. No one could have seriously argued that uh, it, it extends to transgender rights, and uh, furthermore, although gay rights was on the radar in the, in the mid-1960s, we still hadn't accomplished anything in terms of legislation anywhere. We didn't start winning even local ordinances until the 1970s. We didn't start winning state laws until the 80s and 90s. So way back in the 60s, who would have thought that Congress had any intention to protect gay people from discrimination? Certainly not the EEOC which in its earliest opinions on this said that it didn't have jurisdiction. And all the federal courts were turning this down. The first federal court to actually, at the appellate level, to extend jurisdiction to a sexual orientation claim was the Seventh Circuit in Hively, and that's just a few years ago. Yeah. Awesome. You know? So uh, if your version, if your version of textualism is that the text must be interpreted in the context of the times and what a reasonable legislator would have thought it meant, then you may agree with Justice Alito's dissent or Justice Kavanaugh's dissent. All right. So in these cases, we have equal protection. We have the, uh, the Adams case from Florida. And we have that's Drew Adams. And we have the uh, Gavin Grimm case which everyone must remember from Virginia. And I, I bet people when I'm saying Gavin Gripman is saying, what, that case is still around? That okay. case is like five five years old. Right. and He's graduated, he's, he's in a community college on the west coast now, you know, wh- what's that? Well, he wouldn't drop it. He Good. said, I want a declaratory judgment that I was discriminated against and that the school's policy is illegal under Title IX and under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, and the district judge awarded him nominal damages and the school district, stupid as they are, appealed. <laughs> so that appeal was pending. And and we had the Drew Adams case in Florida, which Lambda Legal was litigating. Uh, Gavin Grimm was represented by the ACLU. Uh, so we had two of our big national LGBT rights organizations